Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. You are listening to 3CR. This is Uprise Radio. It is Wednesday, the 5th of May. My name is Jackson, and I am here with James. Hello, James. Hello, Jackson, and hello to everybody listening. Thank you for tuning in. How's your week been, James, or your, your fortnight? What's What's been going on in your world? Um. Oh, I don't know. I guess not too many things to perhaps talk about but I think yeah there's been certainly some interesting things kind of happening in the political landscape in Australia I think we had May Day on the weekend obviously lots of listeners would have been out to some of the events that took place on Saturday or Sunday and yeah I think there's it's been uh it's it's been heartbreaking to hear about people in India and um kind of things that they're going through of course but I think, yeah, with that, there's some really interesting issues, I think, from that, you know, as soon as the pandemic seemed to be really starting to take off there, all of the wealthy people just flew out of the country, uh, which is a real kind of stark reminder of the, you know, way that the pandemic is not equal across classes. And then, you know, the Australian government has put this travel ban on people from India with you know possible jail time or huge fines if people breach that and of course the IPL is still happening uh, and the cricketers there you know I guess uh, face a pretty uncertain few weeks and you know, I, do, I do feel for them but you know I think it would be quite bizarre to make special treatment for them while on the other hand thousands of other Australians are stuck overseas. Oh, yeah. How about you, Jackson? Well, there were some athletes that made a run, you know, so obviously they got some kind of, you know, advanced warning that this is what the the, the drastic action the government was going to take. It is an interesting point about Mm. who gets access to what. Like I was struck in all of the furor about the vaccine rollout. It has to be considered considering Australia, a very wealthy country's current level of COVID infection. I think we should be well down the list in receiving any type of vaccine compared to countries where the problem is you know, 
much more serious and advanced but of course that doesn't figure into anyone's thinking you know about what you know who gets vaccines mm. and why everyone just wants 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 now 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 is kind of the and that's kind of treated as just a natural way of approaching a global issue which i have a bit of an issue with but yeah it was um it was may day on the weekend and you know i work at a school i don't know whether the listeners know but i don't have the most interesting job i, I work as an administrator but i try and uh you know lighten it a little by writing poetry to my staff uh my fellow colleagues in of, of a morning when I send out some communiques to the school I'll add poetry if the mood takes me and I was I was moved to write a poem about the union in schools pardon pardon my voice um <laughs> I've had a cold and I'm losing it but I, I thought I'd just read it read it aloud if you don't mind if you'll if you'll hear me for a moment James uh this poem is called where it read it was May Day on the weekend which has lost a little luster since accords were signed and union swapped raw power for mere bluster but today you'll see colleagues wearing reds comrades you could call them and it pays to remember all the wins this fellowship has brought them time to rest and time to learn and time to care when needed, a path towards prosperity with raises guaranteed and speeded, a group of ears what's sympathetic and experientially grooved, where our working time, near half our lives, can be gradually improved. So if you see how things could be bettered for you and many others, don red hues and pay those dues and show us your true colours. Uh, beautiful. It certainly, it, it really sounds like a a poem from the old union stronghold days doesn't it i was trying to whistle a a, a portside jaunt as i was mm-hmm. putting it through my head thank you james that's the feedback i was looking for uh but uh, yeah, today, i think it's it's, sorry, it's pretty interesting i think with mayday uh, you know there's been this kind of really long long battle between having this uh sort of parade or as i've sort of referred to it sometimes as kind of a a union funeral march on Sundays at Trades Hall, followed by in the past, it did have, you know, great rides for the kids and awesome cakes and everything for by the May Day committee. And, you know, it was a pretty special day for lots of people on the left to kind of get together and unionists to, you know, remember the kind of struggle they've been through for the year. But there's been this long running battle between that day being a Sunday and celebrating or, you know, indeed having protests on the actual May Day on May the 1st, which, you know, is what happens all around the world. Uh, there are protests all across the world and, and in some places in Australia, even in Queensland, for instance, you know, there's a public holiday on May Day. But yet, you know, in the so-called left-wing capital of Australia in, in Melbourne, we accept this uh, idea of this watered down approach to May Day, which doesn't even, you know, really recognize or it's not really recognized even by the kind of new administration at Trades Hall. You know, 2019, they didn't want to have a May Day event at all because it would get in the way of the federal election. Not sure how. And last year, obviously, because of the pandemic, nothing happened. So, oh, I think that it's it is particularly timely to have a poem like that and to reflect on May Day, Jackson, because I think that 
you know, those traditions are being lost and it's a shame. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about a different union today to do a radio segue, James. We're going to be talking to a friend from a friend, Patrick Gordon, who's a we have a media spokesperson for the recently formed Renters and Housing Union, RAHU, it's called, Renters and Housing Union. It's a national union representing the interests of the uh, people undergoing housing stress, people renting, people on the verge of homelessness. And, of course, this is a extremely, you know, pertinent topic right now because a little over a month ago some of the protections uh, that were enshrined in law during COVID uh, to, you know, stop the economic impacts uh, damaging so many renters and people of, of low income, you know, whereby there was, you know, bans on rental increases and bans on evictions and moratoriums on mortgages for people who, who owned homes as well. My study. Uh, you know, they, they were all wound back on, on March 29th mm. uh, and it's now been a month. Um, so it'd be interesting you know, you can't really, if you type rent, renting crisis Australia into Google at the moment, you get a lot of responses. Um, you know, there's, there's a real shortage of affordable rents in the major cities and also huge increases in rent um, in the uh, outer suburbs and even in, you know, regional communities as people flee the cities, you know, looking for a tree change mm-hmm. or some kind of safety or security. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really pressing issue. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking to Patrick, not just to find out how that impact is, um, affected uh, those that are undergoing housing stress or whatnot, but also because there's still a lot of ways uh, in which you can protect yourself against uh, pernicious landlords who may be wanting to take advantage of this um, legislative grey areas, you know, as, as these uh, changes come in and, and that, you know, landlords, as I'm sure you're aware, can be very aggressive when talking about rental increases or the possibility of eviction. Now those things are back on the table. It'd be worth, be good to chat to Patty about. Uh, what people yeah, I, I see um, that over the last uh, little while, well, I noticed um, just over the last week that there's a new um, housing group that started in Geelong as well. They're called Homeless Homelessness Action Geelong. And, yeah, there's some of the issues they talk about is the stopping unfair tax concessions that benefit the rich, an increase to job seeker income support payments, uh, and, you know, talking about building up to 50,000 public housing properties across Victoria, amongst other things. And, you know, people can look them up if they're interested. But, yeah, I think, you know, there, there are big things like, like you, you know, rent increases or uh, things like that as well. And, and something, um, you know, personally as well with that sort of had a long-running battle with our real estate agent about is that when they're doing house inspections that they uh, just – you know, I think over the past few years adopted this idea that they will take photos of everything. And we had been, you know, uh, even from the start had said that we don't want them to do that. You know, we, they weren't really, I'm not, I don't think there's necessarily something suspicious happening with it, but they wouldn't really clarify what they were doing with the photos. Yeah. Yeah. How long are the photos being stored for? Who has access to them? You know, that kind of thing. What are they um, being yeah. used for, you know, if it's about... Exactly, yeah. I don't see there's not really... They're not just photos of, you know, you might have, for instance, um, you know, a crack in the wall and you take a photo of that and over a period of time you can see, oh, that crack's getting worse. Therefore, you know, there's more damage. 
that that's obviously totally understandable but you don't need to take a photo of people's things you know that and when someone comes into your house and just takes a photo of all of your stuff you know you're really hit with that reality that this is not your house and you don't have the kind of you know rights and privacy that you feel like you do most of the time and you know that's the housing inspections are always like that I feel you know they really hit you hit home how much it isn't your home Mm -hmm. and but yeah we were able to stop them from doing that they're coming actually coming um this week and they've said that they will not take photos this time so yeah that might seem like a big thing but um just to be able to enjoy the home for yourself as well you know those things uh make a difference I think as well you just reminded me, I just remember being incredibly annoyed when I locked myself out of my rental property and I called my landlord who regularly let themselves in to do inspections and I was told, oh, no, we don't have a key to let you in. You'll have to call a locksmith. <laughs> I was like, you pricks. It's, just, it's not true. You let yourself mm. into my house twice a year. Uh, anyway, we'll get Patrick in and, and talk about these issues and more. I'll ask him about if that's a common experience, people... Uh, having their properties photographed or their rent, their places they live in photographed. Uh, yeah, let's get him in. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm very well. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to having a chat. I, I know you've been volunteering with the Renters and Housing Union or Rahu since its inception, really, during the, the COVID rent strike uh, last year. And... At that time, you know, advocacy like that of Rahu, I would say, did a lot to deliver some of the important legislative relief that renters and people in precarious housing uh, enjoyed uh, during COVID. But a month ago, I think it was March 27th, you know, these protections began to be wound back. Could you tell us a bit about what, what changed at the end of March? Well, I mean, basically, uh, the eviction moratorium ended. So up until, as most of your listeners will probably know, up until March the 29th, there was a ban on evictions. Um, We still saw evictions, of course, um, often from community housing and social housing providers, which unfortunately weren't covered by this ban. So there were gaps and loopholes, which landlords and real estate agents are very well placed to exploit, obviously. I mean, just listening to you guys kind of chat before, um, you know, about these issues, you know, it can be as, you know, what seems in the scheme of things a small thing, someone coming over to your house to take photos. But, you know, all of this points to the sort of structural power imbalance between uh, renters who are over 30% of Victoria and Australia's population and people who are able to, you know, leverage uh, their ownership of property of property to make a profit out of a fundamental human right, i.e. the right for housing. Um so, yeah, we saw a lot of those protections wound back. Uh, notices to vacate are again being issued. We're um, interested in, in uh, getting some data from, from VCAT on that, but we do know that there has been uh, a surge in people receiving those notices. A lot of um, renters during the pandemic were forced into accepting uh, rent deferrals rather than rent reductions. So while, mm. you know... We heard Scott Morrison say, you know, oh, yes, negotiate in partnership in good faith. I mean, the idea of a partnership is pretty laughable because it's not an equal relationship, Mm. you know, between you as a renter and your landlord and your real estate agent. So a partnership's out of the question. Um, and, And due to this, again, structural power imbalance, we saw a number of renters to keep a roof over their head except rent deferrals and 
yeah, now that the moratorium's over, those debts can be called in, even though, of course, people don't have the money as renters. You know, ironically, we're, we're most likely to work in the quote-unquote essential services. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, just, it's, you know, the old sort of axiom, you can't get blood from a stone. Is, yeah. yeah. Um, I hear what you're yeah. saying about, you know, wanting to get information from VCAT, but I wonder, like, what kind of, um, you know, stories and anecdotes are you hearing from your members at the moment about landlords' behaviour? Because you've mentioned, you know, those those protections have disappeared. There's also some grey area about, yeah, exactly, like how that money that was deferred or, you know, perhaps some renters would have seen it as, you know, just a refusal to pay rent rather than a deferral. I'm sure landlords are seeing it as a deferral. But there's also, mm. like, we're hearing constantly that the rental market is going gangbusters, particularly in areas that used to be on the more affordable side, like the outer yeah. rings of major cities yeah. and even rural areas. So I want, and so surely there'd be a lot of landlords thinking, I want to get in on this new higher rent, you know, this kind of steroid gentrification, where a landlord yeah, would be like, absolutely. I just want to get rid of my, you know, you know, my my difficult tenants who didn't pay when they lost half their work or you know had all these problems. According to COVID, I just want to bring in some new tree change yuppies and get higher rent out of them. I mean, that's my imagination. Is that what you're kind of hearing? from from members yeah look it, it, it what you're describing as your imagination is the reality on the ground for, for many many people we've we've certainly seen members whose landlords have been just like kind of waiting to evict them you know like they and as you say like in the outer suburbs um you know there's there's still the rents have gone up by an enormous amount there's been an increase um of i think 3.9 percent on average which is is a significant amount in the outer suburbs um you know, uh, rent, rent, rent uh, they're up by 10% uh, as a, a kind of growth in the in the last year on the whole because a lot of people uh, discovered during COVID working from home, et cetera. So, yeah, you, you get wealthy people doing these tree changes, gentrifying areas that previously were the only recourse for people who could only afford a very limited amount of rent. And so, yeah, we have landlords, of course, waiting to evict you know, what they would deem less desirable tenants, those tenants that might be on government benefits, who might be international students. International students, by the way, were not protected protected at all during the pandemic. And we've... ...those who are international students just in desperate straits um, mm. and also quite fearful. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously like a racist undertone to all of this, as there is to so much policy in Australia. And the fact that international students were not cared for or, or, or even really thought about, um, even in, you know, this allegedly progressive state that we live in. There were no provisions under that, you know, for, for, for international students to get support, um, you know, to, to keep paying their rent. So, yeah, there's a lot of desperate people. I mean, I spoke to someone uh, only yesterday who has uh, a family uh, of four children and two dogs who are, you know, just being bussed between hotel accommodation to hotel accommodation you know, with this risk of homelessness hanging over them weekly. And, and this is an, an uncommon story. Mm. I mean, crisis accommodation was uh, ballooned uh, mm. during the pandemic for mm. obvious reasons, and people were temporarily allowed to stay, you know, in hotels or whatever um, because they were in, in uh, you know, in, in deep housing stress in, in crisis. But, you know, with the, with the winding back of the funding for these services, um, you know, people are desperate and they have nowhere to go. And, again... You know, like there's uh, 3.7% is the figure, sorry, um, but that's that's the rental increase in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And that's that's a significant amount, and especially when you consider, as you say, that these suburbs are on the where people can afford a home if they're yeah. living, you know, close to the poverty line. 
And people are, you know, spending often upwards of 50% of their income on rental just to live near near to work yeah. in the cities, you know, especially if you're living on on job on, you know, supported payments from the government as well. Uh, you know, it can be really difficult. It's interesting what you just touched on there that the money was found, you know, when there's the threat of a looming pandemic, mm. you know, the money was found to house, you know, we heard before the pandemic hit that if you lined up all of the families, you know, in crisis accommodation or desperately on the waiting list for housing, uh, in insecure housing, I think is the term they often use, that they mm. would stretch from Flinders Street to Frankston, you know, a line of, of people. Wow. That was pre-COVID, you know, and now, of course, yeah. you know, yeah, the, yeah. the economic ructions are kind of under the surface at the moment as the huge spending from the federal government, you know, uh, subsides around JobKeeper and JobSeeker and all of those things and the, the mortgage uh, moratoriums. You know, you did touch on there what the state government can do because it is a kind of state government responsibility. And we, and we were buoyed last year's budget. There was a big announcement for it, for a, you know a pretty historic investment in you know they termed it social and community housing. I mean that's kind of the macro at a micro level. Just you know in the suburb that I that I live in in, in Footscray, just nearby Seddon, there was a refusal to allow social housing to continue to be placed in an area of Seddon recently by the council. They want it to be student housing instead because a number of people living in the area complained about, you know, just made the normal uh, stereotypical complaints about people on low incomes. Uh, And so the council, of course, you know, went with with their well-heeled gentrified um, supporters and, you know, refused this really essential housing. I mean, from Rahu's perspective, how did you guys see that massive announcement from the Andrews government last year, and and what's the you know what's the outlook for you know real spending on you know public housing, which is what is needed in 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 the upcoming budget? Do you think? Well, we're not optimistic that the upcoming budget will will feature much. Um, where I think it's the eleventh that will drop, so in about a week. Um, but yeah, we I mean obviously. We welcome any investment in housing, but the devil is in the detail with with policy like this. And a lot of people uh, are unfamiliar um, with the distinctions between public, community, um, affordable and social housing. Now, public housing is is what we um, as an organisation are calling for more of, like the waiting list, as, as many of your listeners probably know, are obscene. You know, people can wait, you know, decades, decades. For, for, for public housing. Mm. And, you know, but public housing is, is, is secure. You know, the government owns it. They take 25% of your income, so that's below, um, you know, if you're deemed to be paying more than... If you're paying more than 30% of your income in rent, you're deemed to be, you know, living in poverty by a number of different poverty line metrics. So, you know, it keeps it below that level. It's, you know, housing that is that is secure, it's affordable, and, yeah, it's publicly owned. Now, community housing is a whole different kettle of fish, and it sounds nice. You know, we love the word community, even though it often is a cover for this other, you know, kind of neoliberal, you know, mm. we have this, this highly neoliberal society where we're all, you know, atomised and competitive and then you throw in a few bits of community here and there and that, that's, that's meant to be a salve, you know, a kind of, yeah. A, a poultice, yep. A poultice, that's right. But, um, you know, community housing is run by housing orgs, um, some of whom may be not-for-profit, some of whom may be for-profit. Um, you know, and not-for-profit, not-for-profit is another yeah. one of those wonderful neoliberal buzzwords, isn't it? Because while you are not for profit, you're still operating in a business landscape. You still have to be competitive, you know, to yeah. continue to yeah, yeah. to operate, you need to have an operating profit. You, you know, and, and you know, you touched yeah. at the very start of this interview about the evictions that we did see over COVID and some of them came, you know, from community yeah. housing, social yeah, housing. I think com- common equity housing yeah. limited was one of the um mm. 
organisations that did some evictions quite recently, didn't they? Um, can yeah. you kind of touch on how, like how that works, like how the interests of those community housing organisations come into conflict with the tenants who supposedly are the community they're, they're representing? Yeah, well, I think the fundamental thing um, is that, you know, community housing providers are, you know, are not-for-profit organisations for the most part governed by boards of management. So they're ultimately, you know, they're accountable to their members to an extent, but in contrast to, like, say, Rahu, who we're a rank-and-file union, where you know we're, we're democratically governed, we vote at our at branch meetings on every proposal and every you know policy. Uh, yeah, every policy proposal we put forward. Uh, you know, a community housing provider ultimately you know is is accountable. You know, in, in a much loose sense to the people that make up the community that they're that are housed in these in these um, you know in, in in their stock, and that the amount that they take in in rent from people who, who live in this housing can be, you know, up to 30% of their income. Um, you know, they're, they're, it can be quite opaque navigating, you know, bureaucratic uh, boards of management and the processes and so forth. Like a, a member uh, of Rahu who, who was evicted from their home in uh, community housing, this was by CEHL after living there for almost 30 years, was unaware that there'd been a change in, in the structure of the organisation. So they were paying the rent into the account they'd always paid it into. This had been a structural change and they weren't informed of this. So things like that, especially if people are, you know, speaking English as a second language, they might be people who are on, you know, who have difficulties with learning or difficulties with, with any number of things. You know, it does, you know, boil down to being people who are who are more vulnerable in community, uh, social and public housing. Like not by any means, it's not a blanket thing, but, you know, that, that, that if you were to make like a generalisation, you could perhaps generalize along those lines and so yeah again what we instead of secure public housing which guarantees a home you know and, and only 25 percent of your income coming out you know we see this opacity that anyone who's dealt with Centrelink will be familiar with um and yeah I, to to kind of cycle back to your original uh point about the the andrews government's budget and the increase in housing spending like you know, previously uh, we've seen the gentrification and development of public housing stock in these kind of public-private partnerships uh, when, when funding like this has been announced and you all of a sudden what was, uh, you know, an estate of all public housing is a mixture of community housing and social housing and public housing and, you know, just normal rental housing as well. And so all of a sudden, you know, there's... there's there's, there's an opacity around around the, the whole situation that if, if, if we were just to build massive amounts of public housing, wouldn't be there. Mm. I mean, the, the Home Builder Grant, which has ended just today, um, there's actually quite a good article in Crikey today by Bernard Keane regarding this. I mean, I, I thought this was pretty pretty terrible pol- policy from the Morrison government um, to, to, to boost the, the renovation budgets of, of people who already owned a home. Mm. And could but already borrow $150,000 to yeah, renovate. indeed. But if you're looking genuinely to stimulate the economy by giving, you know, jobs for tradies and, you know, all the associated work that, mm. that comes with, with building, like it's, you know, this, it is, a, it is a, a fantastic way to mm. generate economic and that And that tiered system, dynamism. that tiered system yeah. you're describing of having social housing, community housing, affordable housing, yeah. public housing, like it does kind of play into this idea that no one would want to live in public housing. When, of course, yeah. if you cycle yeah. back to the 1960s, like people were proud of their public housing estates, you know, yeah. and a lot of working class people lived in these fantastic communities. I've spoken to people of different generations to me who remember these spaces with fondness. It's only been, yeah. you know, in the neoliberal era as we gut the services and we gut the care from the Department of Housing and outsource it 
to all these other things, that all these other entities, all these NGOs and NFPs, that we start to see the real degradation of those spaces and why that housing stock has fallen into such yeah. disrepair. And you're right that you know a new build you know would provide the same style of stimulus to the construction economy without feathering the nests of the of the already uh, you know upper middle class yeah. and and well off. And I think of there's there's a lot more to discuss in this space, but we are, of course, running out of time. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Uprise Radio today, Patrick. And um, yeah, if people want to join Rahu, they can just type in R-H, R-A-H-W Union into Google. It will come up on the top of the search. It, uh, it will. It's, um, I'll just say it's $10 a month if you're waged, and it's $1 a month if you're on a low income or unwaged. So yeah, please do join us. Um, our power is in our solidarity. Uh, the more of us renters that are sticking together, the more chance we have to fight back against uh, landlords and real estate agents. Beautifully said. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there. I'm going to go out with a little bit of uh, John Lee Hooker, uh, the land lady. It's called the house rent boogie, I should say. The house rent boogie. I told the landlady... I lost my job and I didn't have the rent. She said, I don't care about you ain't got the rent. Because all I want is my money. You've been here three weeks and you ain't paid a dime. I said, give me one more week to get the money together. She said, I'm going to give you one more week. You're going to have the rent out the door you're going to go. Next week come, I didn't have the rent. And I come in, I sneaked in the house late that night. That morning come, she knocked on my door. So I want my money right now. I said, lady. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.